So this morning I want to explore uh, for the third time the area uh, that I've been calling ethical practice and with a particular focus on non-harming. And we started uh, two weeks ago, or I guess, yeah, it'd be two weeks ago. And so this will complete a certain cycle of pointing to the centrality of ethical practice and non-harming for our practice, even though for a lot of us, we've sort of interpreted spiritual practice, and generally Buddhist practice, in term, often in terms of meditation. But there's something very crucial about having the integration with uh, what we can call ethical practice, just how we are in our everyday lives and how we practice to reduce the aspect of harming. Very, very central and very, very crucial for our times, as was brought out some in the uh, sharing uh, before the break, that if each of us would really take the practice of non-harming as central in our individual lives, in our relational lives, and in our lives in the larger social world, and be forces for good even more than we may be now, that would have an impact. And so I, that's what we want to explore further. Um, I thought I'd read two short passages from the Buddha about the importance of uh, eth- what we can call ethical practice. That is, uh, again, traditionally uh, understood for monks and nuns in terms of 200 guidelines. Perhaps for us, thankfully, for us, just five. <laughs> But variants of non-harming, they are first, not to kill, or more generally, not to harm. Secondly, not to take that which is not given. We might say not to steal. So you can see it's quite parallel to the Ten Commandments in the uh, Jewish and Christian tradition. The third through the fifth, about being very careful with energies which easily lead to harm. The third, about sexuality the fourth about speech, and the fifth about, um, I I use the phrase, substances which shift consciousness. Traditionally, it'd be translated as intoxicants, okay? And so, on the one hand, we're really invited to cause less harm and to really take an inventory of where we do cause harm. And on the other hand, I think as we brought out in the last uh, two sessions, the ethical guidelines are often phrased more negatively. Don't do this, right? Refrain from that. But in actuality, the understanding is always that we both refrain from the negative, but we develop the positive. We develop the qualities which go against the tendencies to harm. And so for the first ethical guideline about not harming, not killing, we might develop more kindness, warmth, loving kindness, compassion. For the second about not taking that which is not given, we might develop generosity and respect for others. And same thing for the third through the fifth, where we have these sometimes challenging energies of sexuality, speech, and substances which shift consciousness. Again, we would want to be developing care, respect, kindness. 
and empathy for ourselves and others. So the ethical guidelines can be really be understood in this double way of both refraining from the negative and developing the positive. That's important. So two passages from the Buddha from, uh, again, 2,600 years ago. Sometimes the word virtue is used as a synonym of ethics. So the Buddha says, one who is virtuous and wise shines forth like a blazing fire. Would you like to be that kind of blazing fire? I think so. (laughs) Okay. Another passage, not to commit evil, but to practice all good and to keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So that's our aspiration. And one of the things about ethical practice is always understood that we regularly fall short. So again, the ethical practice isn't about having rules that if we don't follow, we get punished. They're really, uh, in fact, the passages that we recite when we're take, often at the beginning of retreats, we say at the, each of the uh, ethical guidelines starts with for the sake of training. So it's always in a training context. And falling short means we just notice that, we try to learn from it, and keep on going. So it's not, a, it's not a punitive ethical model. You go against the ethical precepts and, you know, your karma is scarred for life. <laughs> or lightning bolts come down and strike you. If not today, then tomorrow. Right? It's not like that. It's, it's in the context of learning, training, and uh, knowing that we all go against the precepts. We all have the tendencies to harm as well as the tendencies to be awake. That's the understanding. So um, the first talk two weeks ago, I talked again much in the way I've done now about the centrality of ethical practice. And I gave five ways, five core ways to practice. And those of you who weren't here and want to hear the talk, it's on at the website dharma, C-D-H-A-R-M-A, dot seed, dot org. And you can listen to it, download it, open site, you can hear it. So, but here are the highlights. <laughs> okay. Here's the, what, the, um, what did we used to call that in college? The, the crib version or the, or the, well, the crib notes, right? So, you know, you slept late, didn't go to that class for half of the semester. Here are the special notes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the first was to work with intention. Very crucial. That is, and the invitation that a lot of people followed was for one week at a time to remember the intention to follow the ethical guidelines and maybe remember it two or three times a day. Just briefly, a minute or two in the morning or maybe before a difficult conversation. Remember the ethical precepts. Okay? Set the intention. Secondly, let the ethical guideline guide your outer behavior. Again, particularly when there might be something challenging, right? You know, you're about to have your third glass of wine and you say, oh, I'm studying the ethical precepts. Is this wise? (laughs) And again, often it's the asking of the question in an ethical context 
which goes a very long way, right? We ask the question, it's not so much you've got to follow it strictly, you've got to do that, but more you make it a matter of practice, investigation, inquiry, questioning. That's related to the third way of practicing that we outlined was how to um, use mindfulness when we get in a place where we might be in danger of violating the ethical precept or in an ambiguous or so-called gray area, right? You know, just like the one I just mentioned. Or, you know, maybe we're, we're having a, uh, a difficult conversation and we're getting reactive or judgmental and all of a sudden we, we might ask ourselves, what's going on? Do I want to, do I want to uh, keep talking like this? Fourth guideline is to deliberately develop the positive. And this could be done through developing uh, loving kindness or compassion, particularly one of the heart practices. And so having 10 minutes a day where we develop loving kindness, very powerful way to practice non-harming. And a a fifth guideline that we gave was in relation to the larger social dimension. And this was connected with the fact that a lot of people here said, I really know things are in a difficult place. I want to help. I'm not sure why. That's one of the reasons why I invited people to gather and share volunteer opportunities. That we don't necessarily want to help, but we don't know what to do. We don't know what's skillful. And so then the invitation was to be with that reflection what might I do? What should I do that would be helpful? And to reflect on that, uh, reflect on that every day. And that was so. That was that was the first. That was the first talk. Okay, and then. Okay. Yeah, and then the. Bye bye. <laughs> the second. The second talk. Uh, I went further. I wanted, and really the sequence of three talks is how to deepen ethical practice. So last time I mentioned 10 ways of deepening ethical practice. The first of them was simply to do any of what we had been doing before. And by the way, I mentioned those five, but if just one or two of them appeal to you, that's the way to go. So it's not necessarily, it's not to do too much. It's to take one or two things that really help you. It might just be to... Uh, have the intention to practice non-harming and then try to notice when you get in a messy area. That would go a long way if you did that for a week or longer. And so my first way of deepening it was simply to do it for a longer time. Do it for a month. Do, do really have that focus um, on non-harming for a month. A second way that I suggested was to look at ways that we might harm ourselves and take that as a focus. And I'm mentioning these again, not to do all of them, but to see which one or two of them resonate with you that you might like to work with. Third was to have a heart practice for loving kindness, compassion, every, do it every day, just for 10 minutes. It goes a long way. And some of you have had instruction on that and some not, but... Uh, wonderful to learn these ways of deliberately opening the heart as best we can. Very wonderful. 
A fourth way was to actually stud, do some study. There's some wonderful books on my reading list back there. I have several books that are very helpful for uh, learning more about ethical practice. Um, one that I think I would recommend first would be Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, the book For a Future to be Possible. And uh, in my book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I have quite a bit on working with ethical precepts individually, in relationships, and in the larger social world. There's a, there's a lot there. Another thing to do would be to bring uh, a commitment to non-harming into your, your family, your group, or your workplace, your organization. What would it be like if an organization had explicit guidelines uh, related to non-harming? That could be done. You know, I've mentioned sometimes how I was part of a group where we took regularly the guideline about skillful speech, which is essentially about non-harming through our speech and being collaborative. And at the beginning of every meeting that we had, people asked me to give those guidelines. They became the way that we as an organization worked. You can do that. You can bring a workplace or a family into a higher awareness of, of that. Again, another focus is to work with skillful speech. It goes such a long way. You know, that speech is pr- probably the form of ethical practice that is most immediate for us. So to develop further there, I often say that many of us, how many of you complain about difficulty having time for 15 or 20 minutes of meditation every day? Anyone complain about that? If you take speech as a practice, suddenly, five or ten hours of devoted spiritual practice. (laughs) Joking a little bit, but also serious, if you really take your speech like that. And then I talked about ways that, some further ways that are more social, that actually shifting to a plant-based diet is incredible contribution to non-harming in the world, both in terms of Uh, the beings that many of us eat, but also very much in terms of the climate. As many of you know, as much as 50% of greenhouse gases is connected with raising livestock. It's pretty intense level, isn't it? Not very publicized information. Another one might be to look at your own mind and say, I'm going to take a focus to look at my tendencies towards harming related to racism or sexism or ageism or any kind of you know, uh, homophobia, whatever, anything that's in your, one's own mind and there are ways that you can deepen and really uh, study those closely. That's possible. The ninth is to study, actually more study, study the nonviolence of Gandhi and King and Dorothy Day and others. And the last one was make a commitment to helping the world to have less harming in one way and stay with it. And some of you may be already doing that with your volunteer work, but choose one area, maybe it's climate issues, and say, I'm going to really devote myself to that and put, put some open time into that. Again, those are 10. It's not an exclusive list. Many of you could add more. But that, but again, the idea is, do one or two of those appeal to me? Because if we, they did, there would be a very powerful way of practicing uh, non-harming. 
So today I want to take us a little more deeply in, an, in a third way. And this will be, again, I think I'm imagining this to be the last way that I talk about ethical practice. And this is to deepen our practice of non-harming by looking carefully at the roots of non-harming. I'm sorry, the roots of harming. We could say the roots of harming and non-harming, but I was, I was meaning, what are the roots of harming? Why do we harm ourselves or others, consciously or unconsciously? Why do we do that? Why is there so much harm in the world? You know, it's like that, what was that Rodney King from 1991? Why can't we all just get along? Remember that? It's a, it's a very, you know, it's a very uh, powerful question, right? Why is there so much harming going on? And here I want to be guided by the really uh, a core Buddhist teaching which essentially says that the roots of harming are in greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's what I want to explore for the rest of the time and suggest practices that we can uh, follow that help us examine these three areas. And in doing so, I think we can start to see the relationship again, which I've emphasized, of how there is an interrelationship of ethical practice, development and wisdom, and meditation. And that all three are required. I've mentioned how uh, in the teaching of the Eightfold Path, each of the eight fit in one of the three areas, ethical practice, meditation practice, and the development of wisdom, And each of them are understood as in close interrelationship with the others. That's what what makes practice possible. So meditation is actually closely connected with being ethical. And that's been sometimes lost, as I've mentioned the last two times, in the Western Western, uh, way that Buddhism has developed and the Western way of developing mindfulness. In the tradition, there's actually a term Micha sati. Sati is the word for mindfulness. Micha is usually translated as wrong, meaning that there's such a thing as being mindful in the wrong way. And the core meaning of that is that one is unethical. So we could think a burglar can be really, really mindful. A burglar could come to Spirit Rock, take courses on mindfulness, and if that person was not ethically grounded, could use the training here to be a better burglar. Or a terrorist, right? Mindfulness could be helpful. And so, actually, in some situations, some of of you know, in the first half of the 20th century, in Japan, Zen was sometimes actually very collaborative with militarism and fascism in the first part of the 20th century. And they're really shocking passages. This came out in scholarship dating from about 20 years ago. There's a book called Zen at War, which is a pretty horrifying book to read. You might want to look at that. Uh, but it's very shocking, you know, and there are passages from teachings from Zen teachers where they go to work with the troops and you say, do you remember that line when you, 
You know, when you uh, walk, just walk. When you do this, just do this. Kind of be in the present moment. They say, when you walk, walk. When you shoot, shoot. Bang, bang. <laughs> that, and I, I've mentioned how I've heard apologies from Zen teachers, you know, 15 years ago about how they thought the whole Zen tradition was off base ethically. And, was all, and again, partly because there was such, a develop, such an emphasis on meditation. And that's a danger for us. That's a danger of the way mindfulness is being brought into the culture. It's not hard to see, right? You know, if mindfulness just helps us be more present-centered, more productive at doing something that's harmful. You know, not helpful, right? So, um, so it's actually pretty crucial to see this interrelationship. And I, I want to say that before going into looking at greed, hatred, and delusion, because we can see how there's this interplay of the practice of non-harming with meditation and with wisdom. So it's really a wisdom teaching that points out the, uh, what are sometimes called the three poisons. These are taken to be the roots of why we harm, right? as well as why we do other unskillful things. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes we could talk about greed as more like the wanting, the unconscious, the compulsive wanting of something. And the hatred, it could be more generally talked about as ill will towards ourselves or towards others. It could take all sorts of forms. Frustration, being judgmental, as well as physically harming. It could be verbally harming ourselves or others. So let's explore those. And what I'll do is I'll say a little bit about each of the three and, and then bring out how do we actually practice non-harming guided by looking at uh, greed, hatred, or delusion, or greed, ill will, or delusion. I think I like ill will better. Hatred sounds a little strong, doesn't it? But it's actually more kind of negativity towards ourselves or others. So we, it's not hard to see how harming, let's say think of harming someone verbally, how it comes out of, it, often it would come out of ill will, hatred, aversion, not liking. Sometimes it's triggered by irritation, frustration. Just think of the last time that you were uh, unkind and had ill will in your language towards another person. Just think of an instance. Maybe this morning. <laughs> Maybe you have to go back a little ways. And can you, can you get a sense of how it was triggered? Maybe some irritation, something happened you didn't like, someone didn't keep a promise, whatever, right? Didn't keep an agreement, someone did something unethical. Because right? it's clear that we can harm people for harming. <laughs> That's interesting, right? We can actually, uh, this is one of the, the challenges, someone can engage in harming behavior and we can, we can try to harm them as if that's going to help. Right? Very common tendency. And so we, when we, we get triggered and we harm, there's often a sense of reactivity. And we, may, uh, we, can, 
we can see how we have these tendencies to harm. And then sometimes we, we act, we speak in a certain way, or we do something that's harming. Some of it's not so conscious, right? A lot of the harming, this is more where the, where the harming, the ill will, can be related to delusion. How many of us have just have bad habits that we can't stop doing? Anyone? I don't, okay. <laughs> Sometimes I ask for shows of hands here, right? And people, you know, I think once I asked, how many of you think you'll die? And half the group raised their hand. <laughs> okay. So, so sometimes I ask, when I ask a question like that, we, we can assume that it's kind of like everyone. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, but we ha- many, you know, all of us have some things that we do habitually that we'd rather stop, but we have a hard time stopping, right? And these are almost like, these are coming out of almost like stuff that's compulsive, unconscious, and I'll come back to that because it may come under the realm of delusion or ignorance, like an, just something that's more in the unconscious territory. So you can see that practicing with these three does get to the roots, um, does get to the roots of this. And there can be, of course, harming that occurs on a social level, right? And, you know, and it's interesting, you know, some of what's come out in the public. I mentioned, I think I mentioned that the internment of Japanese... Americans during the Second World War, it came out, I think related to the Supreme Court decision, that it was on supposedly on national security grounds, but there actually were national security analyses by the government that made it very clear that there were no national security grounds. So it was entirely for political reasons, right? Like, you know, like our times in many ways, you know? And so we could see that. You could see how harming occurs. Harming gets institutionalized. Right? And, you know, I have a colleague who sometimes I've taught with here named David Loy, who wrote a book called Money, Sex, Karma, and Revolution. Very good book, probably in the bookstore. And he, he very interestingly talks about how the three poisons can get institutionalized that harming can get institutionalized, it becomes a habit. It becomes a pattern, you know, in a society. And we could think of what, you know, racism, sexism, get institutionalized, right? Not hard to see. Again, I was in Washington, D.C. last month and went to the African American History and Culture Museum. Pretty amazing to see the history, right? And there was just, you know, just the different forms of institutionalized harming, slavery, Jim Crow, up to the present, right? And so it's helpful to see that harm gets institutionalized. It also is something that becomes habitual for individuals and for families. How many of you can think of family relationships where there are just ingrained patterns of harming, right? It's um, sobering to look at, right? And so... um, So I'll come back to that. I guess the point there is that a lot of them are almost, uh, they're happening automatically without almost people even saying, I will harm. They happen by the normal operation of institutions and happens by old habits that are beneath consciousness. So that makes it trickier. And that will come back to look at ignorance and delusion as a root. But we can look at, um, we can look at uh, why we harm. 
And often I harm because maybe some harm has been done to me. You know, someone does something, again, unethical, doesn't keep an agreement, and I may speak negatively or do something harmful out of reaction. We want to look at that. And that's where our mindfulness can help tremendously because we can, how do we practice with harming? Some of the forms of harming, like I say, are a little more complex. The roots are beneath the surface. But one of the things about, I think, about practicing with these deeper roots of harming is that with, uh, with uh, something like ill will, we do notice it. And so we can use mindfulness, let the moment of ill will, whether it's from being judgmental, having a nasty word, or actually doing something that is harmful in some way, that we can use those instances as starting points for mindfulness and inquiry. What's going on, right? Almost before, before you act, that would be very beneficial. You get angry. I remember there was an 8th century text from Shantideva when he says, whenever I become angry, I should become like a bump on a log. <laughs> that was his metaphor for meaning, be careful what you do when you get angry. We could take that, we could take uh, some kind of ill will as a starting point for inquiry. In some cases, we might want to say, when I'm in this condition, I'm not going to act. Right? Knowing that the ill will will very often lead to causing harm, even if we're in the right, so to speak. Do you remember that uh, cartoon of the epitaph of the, uh, the epitaph on a gravestone says, he had the right of way. <laughs> I take that as kind of metaphor, right? Okay. We can be righteous and do harm. In fact, sometimes it feels quite good. Does that resonate? <laughs> okay, we, we want to look at all this, right? We want to look carefully at all this. And so um, we can study our own reactivity, our own aversion, our own ill will, use that as a, you know, make, again, we have to have intention. When, when ill will occurs, let it be a light bulb that says, time for mindfulness. <laughs> Not easy at all, right? But can we do that? That's one way to work with it. And just see what's going on inside. See what's going on in your mind. What are your thoughts? Uh, you can sometimes in meditation later bring up the situation and study it. Bring, up, bring the situation to mind and say, what's going on? Because we want to we look at that. Notice, oh, I'm right. I'm, I'm not going to give that up. You know, and so forth. But I have, I'm judgmental, I have ill will, so we can look at that. And then the other way we can practice with ill will, of course, is to work with something like loving kindness and cultivate a kind heart, even for those where, who may have done something wrong. We can bring in practices like compassion and forgiveness. So there are these group of what I, I call the heart practices that are very crucial for working with ill will. You know, practices like forgiveness. Remember, remember that the, the one-liner that Jack Kornfield gave uh, about forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up the hope for a better past. <laughs> okay, because basically it's saying that if I have resentment about the past, I'm going to tend to reactivity and harm. 
And so can I clean up that which is still resentful in my heart and, and have that go along with having very clear action? It doesn't mean I'm say, it doesn't mean I forget what happened. It doesn't mean I even have contact with that person. I can say no, set boundaries, say that was wrong, but I want to clean up what's there in my heart. And so there are heart practices that can do that really crucial. The second uh, area that we can look at to look at the deeper roots of harming is to look at the tendencies towards greed and grasping. It's really the flip side of ill will. You know, it's the flip side of the mind being reactive. The mind is reactive in two ways, one by pushing away, the other by grabbing hold. And so again, we can see this grasping, this greed. We can see what it's like. We can study it. And I've sometimes mentioned that uh, Diana Winston and I, about, uh, about 15 years ago, we offered a class called Greed Management. We offered it to the public. Few came. <laughs> and we were okay. We were, you know, we were excited about the topic. We had five students and two teachers. That was, that was okay. And we, we, um, we weren't in it for the money. But we were in it for the... <laughs> Which I guess was good if we were leading the, the group, right? right? But we... Um, It was fascinating. It was a five-week class, and we had a final exam, which was to do silent walking meditation through a newly opened bed, bath, and beyond. (laughs) And notice what was going on in the mind, which was fascinating. I I noticed so much um, that I was having greed for things that prior to going to the store, I didn't even know existed. (laughs) As products, right? So, anyway. So... um, But what we found was interesting, and this is something, again, one of the ways of working with the the roots of harming is to really study the grasping and the greed closely. When you really want something, what's going on in your mind? Knowing that there's a tendency when there's the wanting to harm. Because what we found, here's what we found when we looked carefully over those weeks at the nature of greed. We found a few qualities. One was that it was quite compulsive. That's not hard. You know, that's probably you would say that if I asked you, what's the nature of greed? It was compulsive, meaning it was hard to do otherwise. Right? It's a force in the mind making me, tending me towards a certain action, a certain grasping, taking of something. And, you know, whether it has minor consequences or major consequences. Another related quality is that greed is self-centered. It's about me, right? It's about what I want. And what we found, this is very directly connected to the possibility of harming, we found that other people's interests did not register when I was in the grips of greed and wanting. Other people's concerns were not relevant. So it's very clear how that can lead to harming, right? A third aspect was that there were no sense of consequences when I was in the grips of, we were in the grips of greed. I didn't have a sense that my actions, my compulsive action, would, would have consequences. In a sense, in my mind, it did not matter. And of course, they did have consequences. Right? But in my mind, the mind of greed doesn't see that. 
And then the last quality that we sometimes saw was that there could often be a sense of entitlement. You know, this is what I deserve. Again, not hard to see that sometimes in examples of racism, sexism, and so forth, right? You know, that the, uh, the harming can come out of a sense of, well, I deserve this, or this belongs to me, or I can do this because I'm this person, or whatever, right? And so, again, so the way of practicing, similar to how we work with ill will, really study closely when greed arises in the mind. If you want to, do silent walking meditation through a store where greed is likely to arise. Seriously, it was really illuminating. We did it for half an hour. <laughs> you know, and it was silent, you couldn't compare notes. And then we compared notes afterwards. And so we, can, we, we study when, when greed, grasping, wanting in a strong way comes up. Again, let a bell go on, bring your mindfulness to it and study it. Again, the suggestion is do something like this for a week. You know, for all these practices, it's better to do it for a finite, small amount of time and really stay with it. Then you might want to do it further, but first start with a week. You know, those of you for whom this is resonating, do it for the next week. Do one of the things I've mentioned. I've mentioned a lot of things. You know, what, essentially, if we all did these together, we have like a six-month curriculum, don't we? And we could do that. Anyone want to sign up? Okay. <laughs> It would be interesting. Yeah? It, would be, it would be nice to share. It's, it's great to share. I've, you know, the groups to share what people were finding during the week. It's so much fun you know, to share some amazing stories. And then, of course, similar to how we work with ill will, we both use mindfulness to study it, and then we also do practices to counter the grasping. Very similar. So this is how we work with the deeper roots. We study the, with mindfulness when it's happening, and then we use practices like developing gratitude or thankfulness or generosity would tend to counter the, the tendency to grasp. And do that, you know, very simple gratitude practice that I, I do, uh, actually, I do a version of it every day, just for a short time, four times a day. Just to, you can do this with your meditation, Remember what you're grateful for. Maybe write it down and just take five or ten minutes to remember what you're grateful for. Gratitude is really, really a helpful practice for anyone with strong tendencies to grasping and also strong tendencies towards negativity because gratitude helps us look at what's positive in the situation. And a lot of us have that, what the psychologists call the negativity bias, where our minds go to what's wrong with us. Uh, a situation. And of course, we could, if we have a lot of grasping, we could develop more simplicity in our lives. Look at our needs. Do I, am I really grasping after all sorts of needs that are not needed? <laughs> right? Or maybe we should call them wants. And of course, there's all sorts of ways that this has social implications, right? Am I greedy with my use of social resources? Are we as a society greedy? You know, of course, a lot of statistics would point to how much of the world's energy consumption we collectively use. So those are the two of these three roots of harming. Those are the two which are actually easiest to study. 
Delusion is harder, right? Delusion is something harder to look at because in a way we don't know where to look. (laughs) That's why it's delusion. (laughs) Right, or there's, uh, I think this was this uh, press conference with Donald Rumsfeld at the time of the Iraq war. And he was, uh, he had the, you can find this on YouTube. You know, the famous uh, passage where he said, there are known knowns and there are also unknown knowns. What did he say? (laughs) Or there are, there are known, no, I got it wrong. There, There are known knowns. We know what we know. And there are known unknowns. We know some things we don't know, right? You following me? (laughs) But then he said, but it's tricky because there are also unknown unknowns. (laughs) He was, there was a convoluted way of saying, there might be, there might be weapons of mass destruction, even though there's no evidence of them. Anyway, but the idea is that it, it's hard to know the unknown unknowns, right? In our minds, like we're, how do we how do we approach delusion as a spiritual practice? So um, it's tricky. What I, I think the best way to approach it, actually, there are a few a few different ways, and I'll I'll mention them. Uh, one of the I think the best way is to actually follow the trail of ill will and wanting and greed. And follow the trail where it will lead into the roots which may be unconscious. Now we've done that here um, in the weeks, I think in the past. I think uh, when I've taught on transforming the judgmental mind, we've done that. Because if you follow the trail of being judgmental and you follow it closely enough, it'll take you into your unconscious habits. Like if you find yourself sometimes judgmental of yourself, like, getting hard on yourself at times. Some of the roots of that may be way in the past and hard to find, but there are ways that you can follow the trail of the judgmental mind. And, you know, in my teaching on retreats and day-longs, we do this, right? That you can follow it. And if you follow it in a certain way, using kinds of inquiry and going beneath the surface, you can actually get at maybe difficult or traumatic experiences from when you were five years old that installed the judgmental mind in yourself that are not obvious and not on the surface. But you can follow a kind of inquiry by starting with what you actually do notice and following the trail further. That's one example. I think you can do that with a lot of different forms of delusion. But you have to, and so we, and that's why we start where we actually notice it. You start where you notice the ill will or the grasping. And, you, and if you have an interest, if we have an interest, we can follow that yet more deeply. You know, you can follow wanting maybe more deeply into the social conditioning that led to you wanting something. Or you can lead, it can lead to something, um, some habit that you maybe you were Maybe it comes from your family upbringing, right? You were conditioned to always think you should get what you wanted or whatever, whatever it might be. These are not apparent on the surface. And, and so 
<clears throat> delusion and ignorance are actually in the Buddhist tradition taken as the most deep roots of our harming and of our suffering in life. And yet, and they're, they're seen in a few different ways. I think I like to see the delusion and ignorance occurring in three main ways. And the Buddha really only talked about the last of these. The first I see is more psychological, sometimes rooted in family background, as in the example of being with the judgments, that we may have some uh, tendencies which become unconscious. And a lot of psychology looks into this. The tendencies that developed when I was young to be judgmental towards myself, to think I'm not okay. Or it could be uh, other sorts of tendencies to uh, think the world's scary or whatever. It can be based on real experiences. And um, that's a form of ignorance or delusion which can be linked with our unconsciousness. And then there's a second area which I think is linked with our social conditioning. All sorts of social conditioning leads us to certain confusion and delusion about some of the things I've mentioned. Race, gender, all these things. So much social conditioning and it's beneath the surface, right? We sometimes talk here about implicit bias. Do you know that term? That we're conditioned on all sorts of issues, race, gender, sexual orientation, to have an implicit bias towards people who are more like us that we think are more like us. It can be across many things. Some of them matter, some of them don't. I may have an implicit bias towards other stamp collectors. That doesn't matter so much. (laughs) But my implicit bias where power is institutionalized with race, gender, and so forth, it matters a lot. And we can actually, it's hard to get at, right? Hard to get at. But that's that's a form of ignorance. And then the third area of ignorance and delusion is more universal. And this is what's pointed towards in Buddhist practice as the, the roots, uh, the root uh, nature of delusion, which is not seeing how things are changing, not seeing the roots of suffering, and not seeing the nature of the self. Sometimes called the three characteristics, right? And we've focused on that at times here. And so one of the ways that one can practice to cut through delusion is to spend a lot of time focusing on these three. Personally, I don't think it's complete. I think we need to look at all three of these areas of delusion. So you see, cutting through delusion is kind of like a lifetime project. Does it sound like that? It's a lot, right? But um, the uh, Buddhist uh, emphasis is particularly on looking at impermanence really carefully. Looking at the reactivity around Again, ill will, uh, greed, really, really carefully. Studying that. And then studying the constructions about self very carefully. And I've, you know, in past times here, I've gone into detail on those. So I would say, listen to all that's been mentioned here and see what calls you for your next step. And I think, you know, there's, there's a, these are a lot of different ways. Like I say, it could be at least a six-month curriculum if we worked with all of them. And I think it'd be wonderful. You know, I've sometimes done that with small groups and it's wonderful inquiry. But see what resonates with you. Maybe one thing resonated. Maybe I just want to really notice when my mind gets tight and study it. Study when I have ill will develop. And 
maybe suspend action for a little bit, take a break, take a pause when I have ill will or greed. That would be a wonderful way to study in this last, the way I focused on today. So let me finish just with uh, uh, two quotations. One is one I gave before. This is the result of our practice of non-harming. One who is virtuous and wise shines forth like a blazing fire. (laughs) And then the second is from Thich Nhat Hanh summarizing the practice of non-harming. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my way of life. So, some time for any questions or reflections, and will you, we use the microphone, so wait till it comes to you. Or it could just be, uh, you know, uh, something that struck you from, from the talk, uh, from that theme, theme of non-harming and how to practice it. So I've given you kind of like 20 ways to practice and just need one. <laughs> yeah, please. Thank you, by the way. This is, that was wonderful. Um, a question I have is about um, the way harming relates to fear. Yeah. I think sometimes, um, you know, you proactively harm because you're That's fearing right. something. That's uh, right. Just wondering. You know. No, it's a great question. You know, I mean, I think what you're pointing to is that, see, if we did do six months together, we would go into all these different nuances. Yeah, yeah, that so often we harm because we're scared and we think that this will protect me. I mean, whether it's an individual or the foreign policy of a government, right? And... Um, and so I think, yeah, part of the, so what this points to is that when we're investigating uh, harming, and particularly the, the ill will or the aversion, we'd really want to study fear. We'd really want to look at what's the nature of fear? How does that work? And again, we can study that in ourselves. We can study it, how it works in the society. Because it, it's very interesting. And I have, I know here, I think about four years ago, I gave a series of talks on studying fear. And it's really interesting. It's an amazing thing to study when it's there. I had a retreat once where I had fear for about 10 days in a row, almost all the time. But it was at a manageable level. It wasn't like overwhelming. So I actually could be mindful of it. <clears throat> and it was... Uh, one thing that's really clear about fear, it's never in the present moment. Or I'm sorry what's going to happen, it's always about something in the future. That's interesting. That's something to look at. I found that when I looked carefully, I could see that a great amount of my fear was about the future, and it was profoundly diluted. I knew that it wasn't real, but it still had a grip on me. That's interesting, right? So it's really interesting to study fear. Yeah. Yeah. So great, great question. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, hi, John. <laughs> I've always been uh, interested in the relationship of Western psychotherapy yeah. and Buddhism. Yeah. Buddhist practices. 
and also interested that many of the Buddhist leaders are either therapists or former therapists. Or yeah, that's um, true. And, and, and so that's been kind of a fascinating uh, interrelationship yeah. here in the United States, which leads me to your 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 comments about you know digging deeper, following yeah. the trail yeah. to the unconscious, yeah. and the fact that for many of us. Um, the root of why we harm is due to something that's occurred in our childhood or that's how right. we were raised or that's right. how our parents raised us or our relationships within our family, etc. And I dare say that that's probably the root cause for many, many people. And just meditating and following Buddhist practices for many people may not be enough. Yeah. Uh, unless they have the the ability to go on retreats and really dig deeper like you're talking about. Yeah, the and, retreats, if you just do standard meditation, won't necessarily go there. Right. So that's where I'm really interested in, in the, yeah. the, the psychotherapy and the importance of that work yeah. in addressing the root causes. Yeah. And, and you know, the, I, I think the powerful uh, combination of therapy yeah. and the Buddhist practices perhaps is a, a more a stronger way, a more powerful yeah. way just, than just meditating alone or going to that's retreat. That's right. I'd be really interested in, because I know that's your background too. Or part really of my background, yeah. 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 Um, no, it's, it's, there's a lot there in what you said. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll respond to maybe at least two points. Um, one of them is just... Uh, knowing that so much harm, so much of our tendencies to harming does come out of the past. If not the recent past, but a lot of it's in the fairly uh, ancient past, right? And, uh, you know, maybe harm was done to us at age five or age seven, or maybe I have some trauma in my background. And there's a kind of pain there which can lead, it can be healed, but it also can lead one to um, harm others. Sometimes because you get in the territory where I think I'm going to be harmed again. You know, unresolved pain from the past, especially when it comes at a young age, it's, um, it can take us back to where we're that age with certain triggers where we don't have the resources that we have as an adult. And we're acting only with the resources of the five-year-old, which can just lead us to lash out, even though we may be 40 years old, right? And so, um, and that's true on many, many levels, you know, that uh, um, there's a, you know, when there's a, there was a study done by the American Psychological Association of Youth Violence, and they found that a very major correlate of youth for youth who had committed uh, violent acts was that violent acts had been done to them. Very strong correlation. You know, and there was a, I remember a show by Bill Moyers on youth violence and one young man just said, I was really hurting and I wanted someone else to feel that hurt and that person was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right? That happens. That happens a lot. And so... How do we get at that? I think that uh, simply meditating 
we don't necessarily have the tools to go into that, either to go into that territory or to know what it does when it might arise. And a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, innovation in the teaching of meditation. I think with Spirit Rock being a leader, where we integrate more psychological tools and understanding of trauma, for example, with meditation. And you'll see if you look on the schedule, quite a lot of offerings related to that. You know, and the teaching that I do on transforming the judgmental mind at retreats and day-longs very much integrates psychological tools. Generally speaking, the model that I hold is similar to the one I gave very briefly, which is that I think there are three great areas of resource which are, we need to integrate in our time. They're the resources of psychological traditions, psychotherapy, work with trauma, and so forth, neuroscience, and so forth. They're the resources of uh, coming from understanding social conditioning, sometimes social justice resources, and then there are the traditional Buddhist resources. And I think my own vision is of integration of the three. And the first two give us resources to deal with some of these, how to go deeper into the roots of some of the, you know, some of the forms of harming. And so, yeah, I think, and, and not coincidentally, there's a lot of very important uh, interaction between psychotherapists and uh, meditation teachers and probably three quarters, if not more, of the Spirit Rock teachers either are therapists or, like myself, have had significant therapeutic training. Please. Thank you for the last uh, three weeks. I missed the first week. Um, I'm curious as to whether or not there's an implicit bias here at Spirit Rock on... I I did a three-day retreat on meditation morality, and I forget what the other M was. Metta. Pardon? Probably metta. Yeah, meditation morality and metta. We never got past meditation. Your two weeks has given me more about the morality of this concept than a three-day intensive retreat up the hill. I'm wondering if there's a bias within the the Vipassana um, philosophy here at at Spirit Rock that kind of eliminates that morality issue, that ethical issue, and focuses more on meditation. Yeah, it's a good. It's a great question, and um, I actually discussed this a little bit the you last. May not want to answer it. Last two times, no. I would. I would say that I tend to agree, and I mentioned how in the traditional Buddhist framework there are these three areas: ethics, meditation, and wisdom, and how in the way that Western Buddhism has developed, and also the development of secular mindfulness there's been a tendency to focus almost all on meditation. It's a little bit stronger in places like Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation World because we emphasize retreats so much. I think that's changing quite a bit. We we emphasize retreats so much. And so it's almost like the meditative training is at the center of things, certainly. And that is the center of things a lot in retreats. Um, Some approaches do it differently, but I think generally in the West, we have... um, not emphasized all three of those so much. So I I think at the beginning of my talk two weeks ago, I think I said something like, I'm going to talk this morning about something that is rarely explored, being ethical. (laughs) It's a little bit of humor, but there was some truth to it around the point because 
It's, uh, now I, I know that Sylvia really shares that interest in ethics a lot, but it's something that uh, I think there's been some way, and again, I, I think it's understandable why we've gravitated so much to, to meditation. I don't think it's, I think there are reasons that can understand it, such as the way that the meditative dimensions of the Western religions have been generally marginalized the last three or 400 years. You know, if you went back in the Middle Ages, you could find Christian mysticism, Jewish mysticism, and, and now you can find it, but 30, 40 years ago, hard to find. Right? Yeah, so, so I think it's an important question, and I think uh, it's one of the reasons I really wanted to bring out ethical practice as a something, again, the, the point was not to focus just on ethical practice, but was to see the way that there has to be an integration of ethical practice, meditation, and wisdom. And all of my guidance makes heavy use of both wisdom teachings and meditative tools. I hope, I hope that's clear. So all three are connected, right? That's the crucial point. Don't, not just to do one, you know. So thank you. Um, I'm kind of, let me just, if you, if you have a, is it a brief question, you think? Okay. If, if it's brief, because I'm, I'm both wanting to go with the energy, but I'm aware we're, we're a little bit over time. Yeah. Okay. Um, last week you said that implicit in non-harming is preventing yeah. others from harming. Yeah. So I was being very careful about the bugs in my house. Yeah. And there was a moth, and my cat started chasing the moth. Yeah. And I thought, well, I have to intervene. Yeah. But he was so natural, and he was having such a good time that I didn't. And then I thought about how in, in the forests, they let forest fires burn out because it's the natural way. Yeah. So this is a deep question. <laughs> and I think I'm going to just say, it's a deep question, let's inquire. Because, yeah, it's like, what's, natu- you know, what's natural? You know, harming, you know, we harm to a certain extent to get food. Is that natural? Where does harming come in to those kind of questions? So I think I'll leave that in terms of time as an inquiry. It's a wonderful question. And uh, see, see what we find out, and we'll maybe share next time I come back. So to close, think of, reflect on anything that may have called you that you want to follow up with from today. Is there a practice you want to follow up with? Just one or two. And then ask yourself how you can do that. What's going to help that work practically? And we close by remembering that we practice both for ourselves and for others. And we offer the benefits of our practice, including this morning, to all beings, which includes all of us. May our practice benefit all. May our practice of non-harming benefit all beings, which includes us. So thank you for your kind attention and your practice and 
Um, I'll see you, I think, in three weeks, and I look forward to hearing how things have gone. So... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.